Good afternoon. This is Dr. Dan Guerra coming to you from Authentic Biochemistry Studios in the beautiful inland Pacific Northwest of the United States of America. Today is the 26th of July, 2020. We're going to embark this afternoon on episode five of aging, that is cellular senescence and also the condition of human aging and its association with disease and ultimately death. So what I did in the last four was give you some introduction of aging from a geriatric generic perspective. And then I delved into some of the potential mechanisms, mechanisms whereby aging has been monitored and maybe there are attributions of the signaling and the production of reactive oxygen induced by bioenergetics that are associated with the actual aging process. Then I delved into a fair amount of discussion of the other side of aging, which would be immortalization. So I talked about cancer biochemistry a little bit. I talked about Randall cycle and I talked about runaway aerobic glycolysis, the so-called Varberg effect. And then I got into um, a rather intense uh, discussion of a couple of mutations you find in the tricarboxylic acid cycle that also are linked to many tumors, again, at a generic level. Now, this is different when we talk about cancer at the, for example, growth factor or at the transcription factor level or at alterations in signaling. I was trying to fundamentally get down to the brass tacks of biochemical pathways because that's what we're doing here. So today, the fifth one, I'm going to continue what I started last time, which is a rather in-depth discussion of reactive oxygen from the perspective of where we get reactive oxygen and what kind of uh, molecules might be attributed to an aging process. And then hopefully some of the mechanisms that are supposedly associated with that. So let's get started with it after that really long introduction. I don't know why my introductions always seem so long. So this is Dr. Dan Guerra, as I said, and I'm doing authentic biochemistry because I have nothing better to do. So we were talking about initiation reactions in oxidation. We got through metallic and we got through photosensitization. I, then I told you there was going to be thermal and enzymatic. Quickly with thermal oxidation, the energy requirements for the abstraction of the hydrogen to form a lipid radical can be supplied in the form of thermal energy, of course, high temperatures, like cooking can facilitate a chain reaction that will initiate the oxidation reaction and then allow or set up for the propagation. So we're not going to talk much more about heating because it's not particularly biologically significant, right? That's more about processing of foods, cooking of foods. And there is a lot of research in there, particularly with lipids and uh, oxidation associated with the cooking process, frying oils and what kind of compounds are synthesized during that frying process, how much of those are carried over into the food we eat, and whether or not those could be associated with any diseases that are associated with humans. Um, I'm not going to talk about that today. Uh, I want to just tell you about the thermal oxidation and try to jump more into enzymatic oxidation. So, of course, here, as I've catalyzed, and it's initiated even in the absence of any production, prior production, of hydroperoxides. That means the enzyme alone is able to overcome, of course, the energy barrier of the reaction. So those other means of developing 
uh, reactive oxygen species from lipids require getting over an energy barrier, right? We did it with metal um, ionization. We did it with photosensitization, the photons themselves, kicking electrons and protons off of a preformed uh, organic molecule like a long chain uh, alkane with a carboxylic acid like a fatty acid. Uh, we just talked about thermal oxidation, but uh, enzymatic oxidation is obviously the most important one, significant one in human systems, in, in biological systems in the general. So before I do that, though, I want to talk a little bit about propagation. So a highly reactive lipid like an alkyl radical can react with more molecular oxygen to form a peroxy radical, and that's called a propagation reaction. During that propagation, peroxy radicals then can react with other lipids to form a hydroperoxide, and you get a new unstable lipid radical after that reaction. This lipid radical is then gonna react with more molecular oxygen to produce the peroxy radical again. That's uh, the chemical designation for that would be something like R uh, oxygen and then oxygen dot, okay? R-O-O dot is how you'd see it in chemical formulation. Now that results in a cyclical self-catalyzing oxidative mechanism where you keep on resynthesizing because you've made this peroxy radical more peroxy radical, okay? as long as there's enough molecular oxygen around. So hydroperoxides are unstable and they can degrade to produce more radicals and that further accelerates all these propagation reactions because whenever you make a radical, you can make at least one other, often two more. And so what kind of radicals are we talking about? Once again, the peroxy radical and the hydroxyl radical. So very potent oxidizing substances which can be very lethal to DNA, protein, and lipid even though this is primarily talking about lipid oxidation here. Obviously, these compounds, once they're synthesized, can cause DNA mutation, cause protein corruption. So hydroperoxides are readily decomposed by a few things. High-energy radiation, thermal energy, metal catalysis, or enzyme activity. So tra transition metals like iron and copper, the ones you normally think about in biological systems, are able to remove hydroperoxides, a series of reactions that are going to be able to be using the electron movement across and amongst those um, metal ions. Okay. Termination reactions, that's where the propagation is followed by ultimately how free radicals react with themselves to yield a non-reactive and now stable product. So for example, two Hydroperoxy radicals can form a more stable now hydroperoxide, right? You can also get, besides peroxide, you can also get hydroxides, and you, you can also synthesize uh, carboxylic acids this way. So carbonyl compounds like aldehydes and ketones and hydrocarbons are all ultimately uh, at the termination phase of the oxidation reactions. So... There are primary oxidation products, those are the hydroperoxides, and then there are the secondary oxidation products, and those are going to be the aldehydes and the ketones. The factors that affect auto-oxidation are, again, energy in the form of heat and light, catalysts like metal, double bonds, enzymes, chemical oxidants, 
oxygen content and the kinds of oxygen molecules you find, natural antioxidants, phospholipids, and of course, free fatty acids. So biological oxidation involves a transfer of electrons. So you get oxidation, and that is basically termed for the removal of electrons and the reduction or gain of electrons, right? So oxidation is always accompanied by a reduction of an electron acceptor. Higher forms of living systems completely rely on molecular oxygen for life processes, like for example, in respiration. That's a process by which cells derive energy with a control reaction, of course, using hydrogen and molecular oxygen and the product, of course, ultimately being water. We talked about this. However, there do occur in this system large number of reactions in living systems where the involvement of molecular oxygen is not necessary. Those reactions are catalyzed by a set of enzymes we call dehydrogenases. Other reactions, frankly, incorporate molecular oxygen completely into the product. So you can express redox reactions. For example, iron plus copper. So iron 2 plus copper 2 can go to iron 3 plus copper monovalent. That could be expressed in half reactions. So iron 2 going to iron 3 plus an electron, that's going to be an oxidized iron ion. That's going to give you, um, that's going to be oxidized. And then the Fe2, okay, in that reaction is going to be the reducing agent. Likewise, copper at the 2 plus plus an electron is going to give you copper at the 1 plus, And this becomes reduced. So that means that the copper 2 plus is now the oxidizing agent, you see? So a reducing agent is an electron donating molecule. An oxidizing agent is an electron accepting molecule. And together, of course, they make the famous conjugate redox pair. So we could talk about redox potentials. So redox potentials is just short for reduction oxidation potential. Redox potential of any substance, of course, is a measure of its affinity for electron. So in oxidation reduction reactions, the free energy change is going to be proportional to the tendency of reactants to donate or accept electrons. And that's going to be denoted by its E naught prime. That's for biological systems. So a reaction with a positive value for delta E naught prime has a negative value for delta G naught prime. So it's exergonic, right? Redox potential of a biological system is usually compared to the potential of a hydrogen electrode. And of course, it's always expressed at standard conditions, which is a pH of seven. Now, if we think about where this might be um, relevant in biological redox systems, we can think about electron transfer in the mitochondria, okay? And that's basically what we call electron transport, right? So you have a total of four complexes that are involved in electron transport. And the fifth complex for oxyphosphorylation, of course, is the proton pumping ATPase. So complex one, is an NADH dehydrogenase. It has an FMN and iron sulfur setters. FMN is, of course, stands for flame mononucleotide. It is associated with an NADH ubiquinone oxidoreductase. That's the enzyme. 
and it's going to feed into a ubiquinone pool, which is going to be existing in a UQ, UQH2 reduced form. Complex 2 is going to be uh, the enzyme succinate dehydrogenase. It's going to require FAD, flavin adenine dinucleotide, some iron sulfur centers, and a, few, and a beta type heme. You're going to have succinate ubiquinone oxidoreductase as an important enzyme there. Again, feeding into the ubiquinone pool. That ubiquinone pool is going to feed electrons then into complex 3. So complex 3 is cytochrome BC1. You have two type, uh, two B-type hemes there. You have a risky iron sulfur center, and you have a C-type heme, or cytochrome C1. The enzyme there is called ubiquinol, which is short for that would be QH2, which I just introduced to you. QH2 is ubiquinol, cytochrome C oxidoreductase. That'll pump electrons into cytochrome C, and cytochrome C will then send reducing equivalents to complex four. Complex four is your terminal cytochrome A, A3 complex. It has two A-type hemes, and it has copper rather than iron. And that enzyme there, that terminal oxidase, is a cytochrome C oxidase. And that's the enzyme that actually will convert molecular oxygen to water. So the electron transport chain is initiated by the reaction of an intermediate and almost all metabolic reactions. And that's with the coenzyme NAD, right? NAD in the reduced form is NADH, nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide reduced form. Now this is an oxidation reaction, and you take NADH, where two hydrogen atoms or two hydrogen ions and two electrons are removed from an organic metabolite. The organic metabolites are usually from the TCA cycle and the oxidation of fatty acids as well. The reaction is, of course, can be represented simply where M is any metabolite. You can say M reduced form H2. That's MH2 plus oxidized NAD. That would be termed NAD plus in the equation. The reaction is then resulting in the products NADH plus H plus plus M double dot plus energy. So you have one hydrogen is removed with two electrons as a hydride ion, that's called H minus, while the other is removed as a positive ion, of course, that's a proton. Usually the metabolite is some type of alcohol, which is then oxidized to a ketone. The purpose of the other seven steps in the electron transport chain is threefold pass two proton ions and two electrons who eventually react with oxygen, make water, to conserve energy by forming three ATPs per mole of NADH, and to regenerate all those coenzymes back to their original form as oxidizing agents. Right? So once the NADH has been made from metabolite in the TCA cycle inside the mitochondria, it interacts with first the complex one enzyme, which I told you is called NADH, NADH reductase or oxidoreductase. Complex one then contains a coenzyme flavin mononucleotide, which is similar to FAD in structure and in function. The sequence of events is that the NADH plus another hydrogen ion 
enter the enzyme complex and pass along those two hydrogen ions ultimately to an interspace in the mitochondria. That's the intermembranous space. Those hydrogen ions acting as a pump are utilized by an ATP synthetase downstream, that'd be complex five, to produce an ATP for every two hydrogen ions produced. So three complexes, those would be complexes one, three, and four, because the succinct dehydrogenase doesn't use NADH, use FADH too. So complexes one, three, and four act in this manner that I just described to you to produce two hydrogen ions each, and thus will produce a total of three ATP because you have three complexes there, right? Uh, and that's for every use of the complete electron transport chain. In addition, NADH passes along two electrons to first the FMN, that's the flavonucleotide, and then to an iron sulfur protein or FES protein. Finally, to coenzyme Q, the net effect of all those reactions are to regenerate coenzyme NAD+. Remember, you have to reform the oxidized form. This regeneration of the reactants occurs in many of the reactions so that, in many of the complexes, I should say, so that cycling effect occurs. The NAD plus is ready to react further with metabolites in the TCA cycle, right? They're going to be oxidized. The NADH is going to be reduced. Those are the dehydrogenase enzymes, right? So isocitrate dehydrogenase, alpha-ketoglutarate dehydrogenase, succinate dehydrogenase, which actually makes FAD, and then the malate dehydrogenase. Right? Those are the dehydrogenase in the TCA cycle at the top of my head. Now, coenzyme Q, which is a lipid, also picks up additional two hydrogen ions to make CoQH2. Okay? It's soluble in the membrane because it's a lipid, right? And therefore, it can move through the membrane via hydrophobic interaction with the phospholipids. And it can come into contact because of this movement, this fluid movement within the membrane, that's the inner mitochondrial membrane. It can uh, form a uh, hydrophobic interaction, ultimately move through that region and end up at enzyme complex three. So in summary, the very first enzyme complex in the electron transport chain is coupled with the formation of ATP. And of course, the, if you want to deal with the entire couple reaction, you'd say this, MH2 plus NAD plus, goes to NADH plus H plus plus M plus energy. And then you take ADP plus a phosphate or HPO32 minus plus energy makes ATP plus water. The energy, of course, is derived from that proton pumping. So that's the electron transport chain. And remember, the succinct dehydrogenase is also going to be delivering two electrons, but doesn't have sufficient amount of power to actually synthesize AT, uh, enough ATP until it feeds back into complex three. That's why you only get two ATP via FADH and you get three ATP through NADH, right? Because complex one can drive through one, three, and four of those um, electron transport chain complexes, right? So fatty acid oxidation um, will give you the NADH as will NADH synthesized by the dehydrogenases in the TCA cycle. So now we can talk about the kinds of enzymes. I've been telling you, I've been rattling off the names of these enzymes. Now I want to tell you something about them, okay? I'm going to, I'm going to go into more detail about what these enzymes are called and what they do. Because this is really critical. There are oxidases 
and those catalyze the removal of a hydrogen from a substrate with the involvement of oxygen as a hydrogen acceptor. Oxidases exist in two distinct forms. Some of them are copper-containing, as in cytochrome oxidase, which is the terminal uh, complex for electron transport chain, and that transfers the electrons finally to molecular oxygen. Others are flavoproteins, for example, alumino acid oxidase and xanthine oxidase. Those are two examples of flavoprotein oxidases that are not part of the electron transport chain. We could talk about those in great detail, but that's not the purpose of this talk, is giving you a blow-by-blow of the different enzymes that can carry out these oxidations. Second one I want you to know about is the all-important dehydrogenase. They perform two main functions. They transfer hydrogen from one substrate to another in a coupled redox reaction. As components of the electron transport chain, that's the second main function. So they do two things. Transfer hydrogen from one substrate to another, like in a TCA cycle, or like in beta oxidation of fatty acids, and then ultimately in the components of the redox chain, which is the electron transport chain. Dehydrogenase is always used coenzymes, and those are always things like nicotinamides and riboflavins, and those are going to be your hydrogen carriers. Okay. Then you have a class of enzymes known as hydroperoxidases. Those include at least two sets of enzymes that you, we think about very often in redox reactions in the cell. One is catalase, and the other is peroxidase. Peroxidases reduce hydrogen peroxide at the expense of several other substances. So for example, H2O2 plus NaH2 will go to two waters plus A minus. Okay? Catalase uses hydrogen peroxide as an electron acceptor and an electron donor. So there you may have two hydrogen, uh, hydrogen peroxides going to two waters. Peroxisomes are rich in those enzymes. Those enzymes called the oxidases, like peroxidases, that's why it's called the peroxisome, and the catalase. A lot of lipid metabolism goes on in peroxisomes. Finally, you have an enzyme called an oxygenase. They catalyze actually the incorporation of molecular oxygen in the substrates in two-step uh, mechanism. Oxygen is first bound to the active site of the enzyme. Enzyme like cyclooxygenase or lipooxygenase or P450 oxygenases, epoxide oxygenases. Those are the three different types I can think of. Um, so oxygen is bound to the active site of the enzyme, and then bound oxygen is reduced or is transferred directly to the substrate. Reduced, for example, to hydroxyl. Consists of two sets of enzymes. You have the dioxygenases. They incorporate both atoms of molecular oxygen to the substrate. So you go A, reacting A plus O2 goes to AO2. And then you have the monooxygenases, which incorporates one atom of oxygen to the substrate, and the other is reduced ultimately to water. Okay? So you have two different types. So so far, we've gone through a pretty fast streaming understanding of what kind of oxidation reactions can occur. Um, again, where a fundamental process like the electron transport chain is involved in the partial reduction reactions of taking molecular oxygen all the way to water. That's where you're going to get the potentiation of reactive oxygen species accumulation. 
if there is any slowing down of the electron transport chain. Okay? And that can happen because in the overfeeding of NADH in the system, or if any one of those complexes become corrupted by, say, an inhibitor or by mutations, okay, or by the production of hydroperoxides, which will then corrupt the peroxidation reactions or the redox in general, as I have just been saying. So I want you to keep all that in mind, okay, as we move on here. Remember, the reason I'm talking about all of this is about aging, right? It's about aging. So a major focus of biomedical research has traditionally been in the pathogenesis and treatment of individual diseases, as we all know. Only one institute of the NIH actually specifically addresses aging. And guess what it's called? It's called the National Institute on Aging, or NIA. <clears throat> More than one-third of the usual annual research budget is allocated in the NIA for Alzheimer's disease. And that percentage increase is probably more about 50% uh, since about 2017 to 2018, okay, in the calendar years. So about half of all the money that NIH spends on NIA, on the Institute of Aging, is spent on Alzheimer's. Now, except for accidents and deadly crime, Humans live longer today than ever before. We all know this, but often suffer from pathologies and morbidities. And those we are fully aware are associated with an advanced aging. Right? Now, biological aging is considered plastic and it's provided a tangible approach to enhance healthy longevity. Now, what do I mean by plastic? Well, plastic is when something changes and it leaves an indelible mark after the change has occurred. Okay? That's as opposed to an elastic response where you make a change and then that change is immediately remedied in the next downstream event. Right? So it goes back, it's elastic, so it snaps back into register. But biological aging is a plastic response. So what happens early on is fed through the system and compounded okay, over time during the aging process. Now, NIH's geroscience interest group has been credited to expedite collaborative efforts to discover all the mechanisms of aging that we can find, biologically anyway. Underlying hypothesis here is that delaying the rate of biological aging, delaying the rate, could simultaneously delay the onset and progression of disease. So this is the argument that if you can alter the rate of aging, you might be able to alter the onset and progression of disease linked to aging, not necessarily causing aging, but linked to it. Now, this is an argument that is not without its um, fallacies. And I'm, that's what I want to get into when I talk to you more frankly about how that argument doesn't always seem to ring true. And the fundamental reason it doesn't is because often diseases can be ameliorated and remitted because of the immune system. 
And even though the immune system carries both plastic and elastic mechanisms, what goes downstream, even from a plastic event, isn't necessarily a furtherance in aging. In fact, I think you know where I'm going here. Rather than getting an aging or a senescent sequelae after an immune engagement, we can actually get, after a hyperimmune response, an enhanced rate of aging or also equally common, most likely as you get into advanced ages, is an oncogenic event leading to tumorigenesis and then cancer. You know, the cancer's leading cause of death. And the older you get, the more likely you will die of cancer or cardiovascular disease. So that's what I want to get into with all this, right? So um, I'm going to stop here. We're almost up with time. And so I just want to say that we're going to continue this process of aging like we're all doing anyway. And when I do, I'm going to do a, um, a fair amount of in-depth biochemistry in intermediary metabolism. And hopefully that is something of interest to you, my audience. Please, please, please subscribe to Authentic Biochemistry and please rate us high on the platform and please consider contributing to Patreon so we can continue this wonderful engagement with you. Uh, again, this is Dr. Dan Guerra from Authentic Biochemistry saying bye for now.